Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. In a lot of ways, New York and the state of Texas could not be more different. Different climate, different culture, and definitely different politics. So it wasn't a huge surprise this week when the governor of Texas sent dozens of undocumented people by bus to New York City. And that has Mayor Eric Adams frustrated because the city didn't know these immigrants were coming. So it's been tough to get those people connected with services, like medical attention and housing. But it's also reignited the debate over immigration reform in the U.S. and what should be done, if anything. Here's what Governor Kathy Hochul said Thursday when she was asked about the situation. I don't disagree with anybody that this calls for and is crying out for a federal solution. Uh, Democrat, Republican, we have to get this together. Let's get into that and more with John Campbell from WNYC and Gothamist. John, thank you as always. Thank you for having me. So what is the mayor saying about the situation of the immigrants coming from Texas and possibly other states to the city? The mayor's not happy. I mean, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is sending these busloads of, of migrants seeking asylum, people who are, are say they're fearful for their safety in their home country and they need to escape, essentially. So the mayor views this as a political stunt. He said as much. He said that he might travel down to Texas to campaign against the governor, which, you know, I don't know how much a New York City mayor would be yeah. helpful in Texas <laughs> to, to Beto O'Rourke, but... It is what it is. So, uh, you know, this is the, the shelter system is taxed in New York City, and this, this doesn't help. But at the same time, the mayor, the governor, they're trying to show that they are supportive of migrants, they're supportive of asylum seekers, and they, they're trying to provide uh, the, the services that they need. That takes money, and both the mayor and Governor Hochul are asking for money for the feds, making that case. That, that the feds need to do more to, to fund this, this, the services for these, this influx of migrants. Now, we don't really know if this is going to continue, right? Because the first migrants that came here from Texas were, came here basically unannounced. So we don't really know how the situation is going to continue if it continues. Well, and it's not just these busloads from, from Texas, right. too. I mean, that's what's getting the headlines. That's what, you know, you see media coverage of the buses arriving, and the, the Texas governor has been very, very vocal about that. But Mayor Adams' administration has suggested that it's about 4,000 uh, migrants have, have, have come up in, in the recent past here. So um, now there are some that are kind of questioning or at least want a little more explanation of that number. But that's a lot to, to put into even a city like New York. I mean, where, the, like I said, the shelter system is taxed. You add 4,000 people, I mean, that's going to mm. make a big difference. Do you think this is a big enough issue to maybe go into the legislative session at all? I know that there's been a lot of conversation in recent years about things like the Excluded Workers Fund, which helped people during the pandemic who were undocumented and obviously couldn't get federal assistance. Do you think that this makes it a, an issue in the legislative session yeah. or it kind of fades out? I'm sure there are things that, that could be done and, and will be taken up. But in the short term, it's more about finding these people's services. The governor was asked about it yesterday. She made that case again that the feds need to step up, essentially. So that the federal government is where the, the, the focus is now, and it'll remain there until at least January when the legislature comes back. So speaking of yesterday, we were at a press conference with the governor on Thursday about 
something called the Green Chips Bill. This bill, essentially, if I'm understanding it correctly, and I'm going to ask you to clarify, <laughs> if I'm understanding it correctly, it provides $10 billion in tax credits to potential businesses coming in to work on these you know, smart chips and renewable energy projects that are related to it. Is that, do I have that right? Yes, but we should say up to $10 billion, right. because this is, it's, it's up to $500 million a year over 20 years. And it is basically, it's in conjunction with the Federal Chips and Science Act, which had 50 plus billion dollars in, in incentives for semiconductor manufacturers. And it comes at a time where there is a global chip shortage. Mm. These, you know, I mean, we're simplifying it here, but essentially these computer chips that we need for our phones, for cars, I mean, there is a race to produce these. And they're trying to make more of this happen in the United States. And Governor Hochul and the legislature are trying to do more of it in New York State. Now, this has been going on for decades in New York, that they and they've spent billions of dollars trying to attract uh, semiconductor manufacturers with some level of success. We have Global Foundries in Saratoga County that is is a major facility, and they're building a second one. Right Very now. successful. Um, but there's also people who say this is corporate welfare. You know mm. why? Uh, why are you putting five hundred million dollars a year, which is the law, would if it's expended, would be the largest industry-specific tax break in New York? toward very wealthy corporations. I mean, it is, there are two sides to this, uh, but the state is all in, the federal government is all in at this point, and now you're hoping to lure these these big companies to, to you know, build big plants in upstate New York. Exactly, it's a really, really interesting issue. When we talk about these smart chips in Albany and Utica, and uh, I know Buffalo has something going on out there at, at some point. Um, so it's really interesting, we'll keep an eye on it. Thank you, John, as always. Thank you for having me. All right, switching gears now, we talk a lot on this show about corruption. It's no secret that Albany is no stranger to corruption, and usually we're talking about people in elected office, like the governor and the legislature. But corruption in New York state government comes in a lot of different forms. Sometimes it's a state employee who's accused of doing something wrong or breaking the law. Other times the problem is bigger and spans an entire state agency. But in either case, that's where the state inspector general steps in to handle those complaints and do something about them. This week, we speak with current inspector general Lucy Lang about her work and her vision for the office. Inspector General, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me, Dan. Of course, anytime. So your role is kind of confusing. We have an Inspector General, we have an Attorney General, we have a State Ethics Commission, we have all of these investigatory bodies that focus on different things. Can you first kind of lay out what your office does for our audience so they know where you're coming from? The Office of the New York State Inspector General has oversight over all the state executive agencies. We investigate allegations of fraud, corruption, waste, and abuse in the state executive agencies that don't have their own internal independent inspector general as established by statute. But interestingly, I also wear the hat of the Welfare Fraud Inspector General and the Workers' oh. Compensation Inspector General. And in fact, just a year ago, my office took over jurisdiction of gaming, so we newly wear that hat as well. So it really is a very broad <laughs> mandate. So when you find, when you have a complaint, well, let's start there. Do people file complaints with your office? Are they state workers? How do you find these cases? We receive about 5,000 complaints annually, and they come Goodness. in 
through our website, through our phone lines, even through fax, and actually newly through our social media account, which has been a big push since I took office in increasing the office's transparency and access. So complaints come in either from state workers themselves, from members of the public, um, or from any official who is concerned about some kind of malfeasance that warrants an investigation and falls under our jurisdiction. So you take a complaint, you open an investigation, and then what happens at that point? When you reach a result, when you reach your finding, what do you do with it then? We have the power to issue binding recommendations for internal policies to agencies. So one of the ways that we resolve a matter is by, at the conclusion of an investigation, issuing a comprehensive report about what went wrong and what should be done differently in the future. Another is a letter simply back to the agency that identifies the issue and suggests changes. We then require agencies to respond to us and to address them. And of course, um, another outcome is the possibility of a criminal prosecution, which we then undertake in partnership with local or federal law enforcement. You know, that brings up this effort by some lawmakers who have said that they want to provide some more teeth to your office, make, a, make it a little bit more powerful in, in different ways. They want to expand your powers. What do you think about that? Is there anything that your office doesn't do now that you, in, in the course of your work, that you really wish that you could do? I feel so fortunate to have inherited a team of committed public servants who are incredibly strong at conducting investigations. And we have very strong working relationships with local and federal law enforcement and with the attorney general's office. And as long as the law is what it is, we'll continue to do our jobs to the best of our ability. You know, how do you see your role in combating corruption in New York? It's obviously an important thing in New York. We see corruption all the time, uh, you know, every day, every week in New York. So your office has this power to look at these agencies and, and, and investigate these complaints. How do you see your role in combating our corruption problem here? Well, we are the state watchdog in yeah. many respects. So one, of course, is to conduct comprehensive investigations and where there is a finding to make that public so that, uh, so that lessons can be learned from it. But another is simply by having relationships and by agencies knowing that we are there and that we're watching, that we're reviewing internal protocols, that we know their staff, that we identify gaps for them. So um, we have been working really hard to develop deeper relationships with the commissioners of all the state agencies to publicize to state employees that we are here as a receptacle for responses and concerns and that we accept anonymous complaints, which we do. And my hope is that in the coming years, we will continue to do the great work we have been doing, but to do it in a way that the public is more aware of and that brings in more and more complaints that enable us to better do our job. Yeah, let's talk about this. So you want to increase the transparency of the office and, and in a lot of ways, the public access to the office. Can you talk about how you can do that moving forward? It's very important to people nowadays, for sure. As it should be, because people want to know and have a right to know what their taxpayer dollars are going towards. Now, of course, we have confidentiality concerns and where there are investigations, um, find that allegations were unfounded. Um, we would never want to be in the business of uh, publicly shaming anyone when there hasn't been some kind of a finding of fact. But where there are findings of um, 
of corruption or of fraud or simply of bad practices that need to be rectified, we have started not, not only putting them out with our large-scale public reports, but of publishing even the letters that we send to agencies to notify them about deficiencies in their own practices. So we have, since I took office last November, gone back and retroactively published uh, nearly 100 such letters that have been issued over the years to agencies that previously were simply sent to the agencies but not made known to the public. That's been one major transparency area that, um, that we've undertaken. And then another, as I mentioned, is social media is simply putting forth bite-sized clips about what it is we're working on in an effort to uh, solicit more complaints and to educate the public about the fact that the inspector general's office is working for them. You know, some positions similar to yours, like the AG's office, is kind of similar, not really, very different area, uh, treat their role as an investigative role, but also sometimes an advocacy role, where they identify places where the law hasn't been broken or regulations haven't been broken, but maybe this isn't something that's great for taxpayers and the public. Do you see your role as that at all? Well, we had a great success, actually, in that area. Area that came from a terrible tragedy, which was a 2019 domestic violence murder-suicide of a, a state worker. Right. And our office undertook an investigation of the processes that were in place to help identify domestic violence um, of state workers and identify that an agency had not followed its own internal protocols. When we published the report of that investigation in April, the governor almost immediately issued an executive order calling for an updating of all of the state's uh, domestic violence protocols, which included calling for trauma-informed uh, approaches to people who identify as survivors of domestic domestic violence. It included developing uh, mandatory liaisons to the Office for the Prevention of Dem Domestic Violence. And after that executive order, we committed to undertaking a compliance check of all of the state executive agencies and actually just last week uh, announced that now, um, a number of months in advance of the January deadline for fulfillment of that, almost every state agency is already in compliance with the new domestic violence order. So that's an example of exactly what you're talking about. That's fantastic. You know, another part of this that people look at in terms of appointed positions by the governor is is the possibility of influence from the executive chamber when that's that's the people that you're investigating. For example, the IG before you was appointed by former Governor Cuomo and was widely rece received as an ally to that governor. How do you see that role for the IG in your in your space? Do you see the IG's role as more of an independent role from the governor or do you see that role as something that is at the direction of the governor? I was appointed with a mandate to function as an independent inspector general, and I would not have had it any other way. I feel really fortunate that I've been able to effectively do the job without any interference from executive leadership in the state. So how, in your thinking, when you're looking at these things, is is it even a thought, I guess, for you? Like, do you have to think about that? Do you have policies in place to put that firewall up? Or is it just a constant kind of rechecking yourself to make sure that you're not crossing any lines? Um, there are policies in place such that uh, I am not in direct touch with members of the executive chamber, um, unless, barring emergent circumstances which have not emerged, and that we have stopped the practice of um, seeking editorial input from our public materials from the executive chamber. And all of that has really gone a long way towards creating what I think is the best practice in 
in inspector general's offices. It's really exciting. It's a really interesting role, and I'm excited to see what you do with it. Inspector General Lucy Lang, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Dan. And we will check in with the inspector general again soon. But turning now to other news, Republicans and farmer advocates say a state decision out of Albany could be a major blow to New York's food and farming industry. Our new reporter, Alexis Young, is here with more. Alexis. That's right, Dan. In January, a state wage board laid the groundwork for a 40-hour work week in New York's farming industry, recommending that farm workers be eligible for overtime pay after 40 hours instead of the current 60 hours. That wage board is set to meet again in September, when they're expected to finalize that recommendation and send it to the Hochul administration for approval. The state already lowered the overtime threshold for farm workers down to 60 hours three years ago, but that was something farmers said they could live with at the time. But they say lowering it again could be a blow to the state's agriculture industry. Republicans joined farmers for a press conference on the issue in the Albany area this week. One of them was Senator Peter Oberacker, who represents a rural district upstate. But lowering the overtime threshold is a crushing blow that our already struggling family farms can simply not afford. This measure will plow many family farms under, and it must be stopped. Uncertainty amongst farmers stems from questions like, can we afford to hire more laborers? Can we afford to pay for dozens of hours in overtime? And how will that impact the cost of food? In April, Governor Kathy Hochul and the legislature approved a new state budget with tax credits to help reimburse farmers for new overtime costs. Yet the farmers, farm workers, and industry supporters present at the press conference expressed frustration with Hochul's silence on the issue. Congressman Lee Zeldin, who's also the Republican nominee for governor, said the credit will only act as a bandage, not a remedy. My commitment is to kill this change to the threshold. It should be 60 hours, not 40 hours. It's not about changing it to 40 hours and then trying to slap Band-Aids on it. We're going to be losing employees to other states as for Hochul, a spokesman for the governor said she doesn't have a public position on the overtime threshold. Dan? Thank you, Alexis, and welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Glad to be here. All right, switching now to health news. Both New York and the U.S. have now declared monkeypox a public health emergency. Here in New York, the number of new cases has started to go down in recent days. And that's great news because while monkeypox is not typically deadly, it can be extremely painful. It's a disease that's spread primarily through close physical contact with others or things they've touched, like their clothes. But it can be scary to see a new outbreak when we're still dealing with COVID. So this week, we broke down what you should know about monkeypox with Dr. Tomoko Udo, a public health expert from the University of Albany School of Public Health. Dr. Udo, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So let's start with a question that I think is on the minds of a lot of people. How worried should we be about monkeypox right now in New York, across the nation, but particularly in New York, since we have the highest number of cases at the moment? Right. Um, so general public, so as you may know, that the most cases are now seen in men who have sex. Yes. Um, we don't know why that is going on right now, but 
um, it's really concentrated in the population. And so if you're not part of the community, uh, the threat is pretty low. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, if you are, then you definitely want to make sure that you watch out, you know, whether the partner uh, might have a symptoms. If you do, then you want to really be careful what you do. So what do you think about this compared to COVID-19? It, it seems like since COVID-19, and I'm obviously not a medical professional at all, but it seems since COVID-19 has spread more through the air, that it's more easily transmittable. Yep. So does it look like this would evolve into something bigger like COVID-19? I mean, it is definitely we're experiencing outbreak, but the scale of the outbreak is very different between COVID and the monkeypox. As you said, COVID-19 is much more easily spread because it's airborne um, and you can contract with the, just talking to people closely. Uh, it's highly infectious, uh, particularly the current one going around right now. Uh, monkeypox, you need extended period of time of the contact with the rash, people with the symptoms and symptoms are easier to identify. You people have a rash around general area or hands and foot, mouth. Those are the typical places where you see rash. In that case, you just really wanna be careful not to touch the person, not kiss anyone. Uh, other thing you wanna be careful is if you know someone had a symptom that had a rash, uh, you want to be careful when you change their beddings uh, mm. or clothes, because that's another way you can get it. Uh, but it's easier to identify when people have the symptoms. That's a diff very different COVID-19. Uh, and it's not as infectious, instantaneous. I, you know, it's not instantaneous even with the COVID, but it's, it requires, it seems like it requires much more direct contact to, to the person. Okay, well that's good news at least, hopefully. So New York and the United States have declared this a public health emergency in the past few weeks. How does that change the situation in terms of the response or just in general? So it really, what it does really allow to, you know, uh, release more funding, allocate more funding. There is a reason to allocate more funding to the response. Uh, vaccination, you know, can be distributed uh, faster. So there, there are more resources put into it. That is what it is. Uh, it's a little different from what we saw with the COVID-19, again, where we just didn't know what was going on. And monkeypox, by the way, is not a new virus. It's been right. in existence for a long time. It's just we haven't seen this area. It's very similar to smallpox. Uh, so the treatment that we're using for uh, monkeypox and a vaccination as well is actually developed for the smallpox, and that's still effective. Uh, COVID-19 was very different. It was brand new virus. It was completely new to us. And so that's why we needed to shut down and you know enforce social distance and so on. But I don't think it's gonna happen because we have experienced uh, outbreak in the past and we managed that. Um, so it's just a matter of you know, how much resource you want to put into it to put down the fire. Of course. Now, given this, th this is not a new disease, as you said. So when we look at vaccinations, there's a challenge right now in getting enough vaccinations to the populations that may need them or want them. Do we know why there's that challenge in getting these vaccines to people? So, like I said, the vaccination was originally developed with smallpox, which has been er eradicated in the U.S. Right. And so the needs for the vaccination has been very low. It's just uh, someone, you know, our, um, people in the army or uh, military who needs to go to places where they might be smallpox, they have to get vaccinated. Uh, and so those are the only cases that we got vaccinated because it's not here. Uh, that's part of the reason why we don't have a lot of stock in pile. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure they're trying to produce right now a lot more. 
Other difficulty is uh, this is also um, live vaccine. So the one that's available right now to the state in the country is attenuated live vaccine, but still it's different from like flu vaccine or even COVID vaccine. Administration is very different from how we get flu vaccine and so on. And so people need to be trained to administer this uh, vaccine differently from flu and so on. And so that complicates things. Um, so all these combination of things make it difficult to really distribute things quickly. Now, given that, do we have any sense on how long this could last as an outbreak? I don't know the last time we had an outbreak like this with monkeypox in the U.S. Is this more of a short-term thing that we're looking at, do you think, or is this something that we'll be dealing with long-term, even if it's not as prevalent as COVID? I, it's, I think it's hard to say. Uh, particularly because the population that's being, you know, uh, disproportionately affected by this virus right now is men who have sex. And again, we just need to be careful not stigmatize them uh, in response when we consider public health response. Uh, and we know this is not STD or HIV, but it is acting like that. And so we can, we have a, you know, a lot of uh, thing we learn from response to STI and HIV. So I, I think that's what the CDC and you know New York State are trying to employ the things that they learn from these responses. So hopefully, and I think prediction is that we can get it under control. It's just a matter of when is a question. Again, the um, vaccine availability is low, so it has to go up and Right now, people can get vaccinated only if you know that you're exposed. Mm. And so vaccine actually can be administered, you know, even before you're exposed, but that's not currently an option because of the uh, pile, the, the um, I guess, the availability of vaccine is so low. Once that goes up, maybe it's better and we can control better, but it might take a little while to get there. All right. Well, we will be keeping an eye on it. Dr. Tomoko Udo from the UAlbany School of Public Health, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll be tracking the monkeypox numbers in New York and let you know if there's an uptick in cases. And for the latest news from the state capitol, don't forget to check out our website anytime. That's at nynow.org. But we'll see you next week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.